0: Many startups are thinking about conserving cash. Some are reducing their R&D spend by cutting headcount. That might be because those product and engineering folks were working on projects that were more aspirational and less proven out, or because their companies are now focused more on top-down sales than product-led user growth, or because the company's new trajectory didn't justify senior leadership, or because it didn't justify the current number of people in management positions. Regardless of the reason, when you let people go, you often have to reorg. And even if you're not cutting headcount, you might wanna reorg in order to help your team run more efficiently. Aaron Erickson, the CEO and co-founder at Workspace, has studied the art of the reorg. The topic might make your stomach churn, but it's an essential one for many companies right now, and not enough leaders reorg the right way. Poorly executed reorgs can be disastrous for the company, Thoughtful reorgs can actually be highly motivational and become the substance of positive stories about company leadership for years to come. In this conversation, Aaron and I discussed, what are the signals that indicate you have an opportunity to trim spend on your R&D team? What factors should influence your reorg decisions? For example, the value of different functional roles, the number of direct reports per manager, the ratio of spend on direct hires versus contractors, and how can you manage through a reorg well, and what mistakes should you avoid, you can listen to the podcast or else read the lightly edited transcript. Let's dive in. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. I am psyched to chat with you about the topic at hand, which is managing your engineering organization in these uncertain economic times. You know, a lot of companies are thinking about how to generally manage their cash, sometimes cut expenditures, and a lot of the time that necessitates reorganizations, new types of organizational structures, and I know you've developed a lot of expertise on how to manage your engineering organization specifically. So I'm psyched to chat with you today.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of it is making the mistakes along the way. Um, you know, sometimes these talks are more of a uh, confession than a lecture. Uh, so um, if we've ever done it wrong, it's because I've probably done it wrong. So uh, hopefully uh, we can learn from my experience a little bit as we talk about this today.
0: Learning in public, that's what we're all about. <laughs> Absolutely. To start, what are the signals that indicate that a company has an opportunity to trim spend on its engineering team?
1: So generally, I'm, I like to think of the sun rising in the east and setting in the west as a pretty good signal. Um, you know, <laughs>
0: everybody. Like, like,
1: everybody kind of. I mean, so if you think about kind of where we've come from the last 10 years, we were in very much a what I would call a hoarding talent market since you know called about 2010 2011 uh most of the time we were very much like hey we need to get people in we need to get more things done uh yeah you know, we were in this and still into some way in, in some ways a war for talent but some things happen uh when you do that and you start to you know, people tend to have this psychology where they don't necessarily want to let people go people don't like to confront others uh, when things aren't working uh and, and that becomes you know so there's going to be parts of the system that you know, just frankly probably where people aren't a great fit. So, you know, being able to help manage people out of the organization when they are not in a good place is something that we pretty much always need to be doing as, you know, responsible executives. Now, granted, you want to do it, you know, with empathy, you want to do it with, uh, you know, care, but let's be real. I mean, it has to be happening pretty much all the time and it shouldn't be just these times we're doing. Now, what's happening now is that, well, we have to, right? You know, th- there is... No other choice. We are being demanded by our investors to, you know, manage that. And frankly, ourselves, because we want to work in thriving companies uh, that are thriving businesses, right? You know, and that, those kinds of things just have to happen. And so when I think of, you know, how do we do this organizationally? I like the start portfolio level. There are almost, you know, I call it zombie hunting. But for lack of a better term, you can use that one if you want. But finding those projects, products, or initi- initiatives that you know are dead, you know, are not going to produce what they're going to produce. Um, and everybody on the team knows they're probably not going to do what they what you intended them to do. So at some point, you want to act like an activist investor and say, hey, which of these things are actually going to work? And deprioritize the things that aren't. And then either reallocate the folks or otherwise you know, start to make some harder decisions across your organization. And yes, that might result in layoffs. Just call them what it is, layoffs. And um, sadly, that's something that has to happen. I mean, nobody likes it, but it's just a re- you know, something we have to do if we're responsible.
0: I'm thinking about how you might through prioritizing some of these projects, initiatives that you said. I know a lot of companies that I work with, and particularly upon the advice of their VCs, are focused on product initiatives that are clearly aligned with revenue. or There's some kind of very clear path to ROI, whether it's revenue or growth or something like that. And other things that are more experimental, they're starting to cut. So I'm curious to know if you think that's the primary framework they should be using to evaluate projects or if there are other ones that are perhaps more engineering specific as well.
1: Sure. I mean, at some level, you're going to not want to end speculative R&D entirely. And it it depends on the kind of situation you're in. Um, If you are cutting to the edge and you're literally looking at six months of runway, you're going to cut everything until it's the only things that are going to lead to growth and the only things that are going to you know, get you to the next round if you can raise one, or get you to the revenue targets you're going to get to. If it's that dire, um, you're going to be by necessity pretty ruthless. If it's somewhere in between those things, right? You know, if you have, say, you know, a year, year and a half of runway, uh, and say you're you're not like a small startup, you know, say you're kind of Series C plus, there are going to be some things that are going to be the big opportunities later on. And if you can leverage the opportunity to maybe invest a little bit in those things where others aren't, you should probably do that. But you shouldn't do very many of them. You should probably do one or two, and be very um Watch those very closely uh, so you can give them you know, the ability to thrive. So there's a couple uh, of the techniques I would say uh, we're going in with. Uh, but as well, there's a saying we always like to talk about, at least when we think about what we're doing as startups, and it's the idea of paid pills versus vitamins. And we think about what products are going to generate revenue, even if you don't know whether they're there yet, like if you haven't launched it yet. And certainly something we're doing in my company, the Workspace, is think about what are the workflows that you can embed? into an organization that if they didn't exist, would make the organization not work as well. So, you know, thinking about those things, there's a lot of nice to have, you know, I would love to build a thing that helps you think about, well, you know, if we have a perfect team topologies and the perfect platform, we would do this. And this is the kind of activity you might do in a growing market. Um, I'd also love to build, you know, something that does hiring pipeline optimization, understand who are the best people to hire. Put them into roles. But the reality is, in this environment, those are not necessities. Those are things that are nice to have. And if you are a person that is asking for a uh, sack spent to buy something, it is not going to be for something that isn't critical right now. And so, you know, something, you know, like I said, you know, you should take your vitamins. Vitamins are great, but vitamins will help you if your arm is uh, falling off. For that, you probably need something a little bit stronger.
0: So we talked about thinking about initiatives or projects across your organization, how to prioritize those. What about different roles within engineering? Are there some that you would consider to be more valuable during this economic environment across companies than others?
1: Thanks for putting me on the spot, Allison. I'm sure it's going to be great with my you know, user experience friends when I say, maybe if the user experience <laughs> is already pretty good, maybe you don't need that as much for this year. And maybe there's some other means you can achieve that with. But you know, I think if we're going to be honest intellectually and think about what we need in, in certain teams, it is going to depend on the team. If you have a product where user experience is truly the differentiator, you're not going to get rid of your user experience people. Those are people that are critical to making the product successful. If you're writing expense report software, well, you may, it may be different. Maybe the user experience doesn't matter as much. Frankly, you can tell it doesn't matter as much because nobody's ever written good software for that vertical that has a great user experience, but you get the point, right? Sometimes it's more differentiating than not. Similarly, there are times where product matters a great deal and product doesn't matter as much. If you have a Product where your customer set is identified, where the next three or four steps are obvious in terms of what to do to grow revenue. You still want product management, but you may not have as big of a product manager or uh, to to drive it. So yeah, you're probably going to consider some strategic cuts there. On the other side of that, I mean, we'd all would say, you know, hey, make sure you keep all the engineers, right? But in some cases, and and this is just reality, maybe the product's already pretty stable, and maybe the goal right now is actually overinvest a little bit in sales if. You know, the sales motion isn't working the right way. And maybe you can get by with engineers to kind of maintain the product for a while to let the uh, sales of the thing you currently have uh, catch up to engineering. So I think the message would be there's no one answer. I mean, we all know that, right? Uh, it's an answer that depends on the constraints that you have and the best realities that you have. And I think more importantly, just frankly, making hard decisions that you know are going to be unpopular. I mean, there's no way you do this and you come out popular when you're cutting lows. So yeah, I think that's where we're at with this.
0: Do you think that as a result of the economic environment, there will be a change in the ratio of spend on direct hires versus on contractors within engineering organizations?
1: This is my third recession as I, you know, not the youngest person in the room, but I've seen this over multiple cycles. And what will, at first it might be a little bit hard, you know, so you'll, what you'll do is you'll start to actually hire more contractors. Because most CEOs and most leaders that are allocating headcount right now are not going to want to hire permanent headcount when they don't really believe they're going to be around for a long time. Uh, That's one version of it. One of the other things that will happen, and generally happens, is you will tend to, at least in my experience, want to have more generalists around because you're going to need people that can be flexible across different roles. And so for your specialists, you might be okay with an engineer that happens to be very good at uh, user experience as I rather than a user experience expert uh, for certain kinds of roles, where when you do need that expert, you might work with an outside agency uh, to bring in some, some of the specialized skills. Uh, you'll obviously pay more for a contractor, but because you limit the amount of time or you're able to not have to make that commitment to creating an organization around that, that sometimes that ratio is going to change sometimes pretty dramatically, particularly in some organizations where they're comfortable with you know bringing on contractors or not kind of product core roles, either in engineering or outside of it.
0: And what about the ratio of direct reports per hiring manager? What do you think companies
1: should aim for? If anybody's ever worked in a flat organization, (laughs) uh, I don't think it's one to fifty. Let's put it that way, Um, because you end up with shadow structures and it's a mess. But you know, a a ratio I like is about one to twelve. One to twelve means that the manager in question can know enough of the context of the individuals so that they can do effective performance management and effective leadership, but not so few where it's like, okay, well. We're in this just kind of you know, wasteful kind of eye formation type thing where it's like, okay, we have, we, we promised somebody to get a manager promotion. We didn't really know if they're going to be good. So we were really careful. We only really put two people under them or one person under them to see how they do. Um, there's ways you can give people that experience of management without naming the role as such. And as you start to move into this world where you need to be more generalist, uh, your, your person in that eye formation was probably an IC, individual contributor, probably pretty recently. I would not be shy about moving folks back into the individual contributor role at that point, but then working with them to still say, Hey, you know, you can, leadership is not something that you need a title to do. I mean, we all know this, we've been in the industry for a while, but I'd really be emphasizing that it's not always going to be what they want to hear, but you know, I think if people understand the context and you share with them the context of why we have to make these kinds of decisions and reorient the work, uh, I think we have to assume that people who work with us are adults and they'll understand why if we give them you know, the right information to reasons why.
0: So let's say that you're a CTO or your founder and you prioritize your spend across your org or reprioritize it based on some of the factors that we just talked about. And now you have to reorg according to that new steady state or that future state that you've identified as the target. What are your suggested tips for managing through
1: reorganizations? Oh my gosh, yes. There are a lot of them, but I'd like to start with as expected. So we need to be honest why we're doing it and what led to it. And guess whose fault it is that we have to reorg right now. It's the person looking in the mirror. It it is your fault. It is not people's fault on the ground. It's not, this didn't happen to you. It is your fault that you have to reorg. And I think the first thing we need to do is be humble about the mistakes we made and not in a, oh, you know, humble brag. No, we screwed up. Like we screwed up. It led to this reorg. Uh, We have to make these adjustments now. We probably should have been making them along the way, but I didn't make the hard decisions. And so now I am doing that. I am sorry. So that's the first thing. There's a lot of empathy, a lot of sorry. You go from that. Then you say, okay, as a leader, if anybody in the organization were doing a new initiative and considering reorg like any other new initiative, I would have a metric by which I measure whether it was effective or not. Um, Now, obviously when you do a reorg in an environment, which is really mostly a layoff, uh, you know, cost management, is going to be one of the metrics. I don't know many people who get up in the morning and go, I'm excited. We, we dropped costs. That's not, I don't know how to do a rallying cry around that. But you can talk about what the opportunities are that lowering the unit economics of an organization are so that you can really kind of talk about a future where a year down the line, two years down the line, because maybe you fixed your unit economics, maybe you're, you know, Revenue per employee is at a better place than it needs to be. Talk about what that opens up in terms of those opportunities down the road. For at least the people that are sticking around, that can be something that's inspiring in a world where they trust their leadership. If they don't trust their leadership, it doesn't matter what you say. So you have to gauge what that level of trust is. But if you've done your homework and you have a high level of trust, you should almost certainly be talking about what the good future is. But more importantly, you know when you communicate this, right? There's going to be a whole bunch of people that aren't going to be happy. Uh, We all know about what happened at uh, better.com. And, uh, you know, some of these stories of very bad announced reorgs where, you know, know, just very cringeworthy stuff. You know, there are simple ways called just being a human and being empathetic where you can avoid that scenario. Right. So obviously don't do that stuff. One of the things I generally say uh, as a engineering leader. There is often, if you ever talk to HR people, they will say every day that ends in day. I'm tired of people elsewhere in my org making me take the plaque, making me be the person that delivers the message and making me the bad person because I may you to do the layouts or finance having to do the thing. Um, you know, we all did this together. We're all doing this we reorg together. And if you outsource it to those folks um, who almost certainly don't have the context you have, it's almost always going to be worse. They're going to just say, "Okay, well, you know, what? we don't know anything about these teams, so we're just going to cut everybody that makes in the top ten percent of uh, income within a band, or we are going to, regardless of you know any other consideration, uh, probably by accident, cut that person that has institutional knowledge, that kind of you know you know in the uh, in the machine that ultimately would is the only person that knows how a given system works, right, and uh, you know a critical system." So if you don't do that, you don't take the responsibility of doing the work yourself to really understand who should be cut or just do it based on raw map and numbers. It's going to go badly. So God willing, if you can have an influence over that, you should do everything you can to, you know, to charge of the process.
0: I know of some companies that have gone through reorgs and they've cut some folks as a part of that. Sometimes actually... Very significant percentage of their people. There's one company in particular I'm thinking of that cut two thirds of their entire company a few years ago. It struck me how, in many of these examples, the people who survived the reorg, who were not laid off and decided to stay, felt so much more conviction about business than before the layoff actually happened. I'm wondering what factors do you think contribute to that outcome where the remaining people are even more excited than they were
1: actually before the reorg? Was it done respectfully? If you do it badly and in a way that likes empathy, you wonder if you're next and you're just waiting to be on the choppy block. It is the plan credible, right? You know, the real plan has to not just be a bunch of hand waving, you know, it's going to be great because we're going to achieve some wildly unrealistic sales figure and it's just going to save us. Or, you know, coming in and say, no, we're going to totally close another round. What everybody knows, the funny environment is not going to allow you to close another round. You know, we're near your metrics to do so. Plan has to be credible. What people staying around that the mission that's there, that's left, even if you're results as a of that, or if you're focusing, has to be something that if you were to quit and then be rehired, you would want to do again. Uh, you would be able to w- rewin those folks. And sometimes just simple things like, you know, sometimes people like to, don't want to use the term layoff because it sounds mean and they make up new terms. Like, I don't know, right-sizing was one that was popular in the 80s. and You know, we can all think of different ways we've named this thing. Again, it gets into that building trust. Call it what it is. Don't make up euphemisms. For what you're doing, be very clear, give people context, give people the business reality, people handle it. Our job isn't to be, you know, shields from reality for our teams. Our job is to help the other grown adults understand context. And if they do that and they believe in the mission, you're going to be a lot more successful. But more importantly, as that leader, you are a leader, you're a responsible allocator of capital. Um, if you don't meet your metric, you have to be willing to put yourself on the chopping block. And that's scary, that's vulnerable, but it doesn't look right if you're the one making the decisions and you aren't ultimately taking the same kind of hit as people might in, in ranks below you, that's not not only is that not fair, it's not effective. So I think you really have to kind of say the buck stops with me, and if I don't if this doesn't work out, maybe I'm the one that should go. Scary thing to say.
0: Very provocative point, yeah. I love what you're saying in general, because I think it shows, it's an example of how radical candor to use, I think it's Kim Scott's term, can really benefit people. It's not just about honesty for the sake of it. It's honesty with the goal of empathy in mind. And I, I've seen that really work wonders in a lot of companies. Another tactical question, I'm wondering if compensation reductions are ever successful. Have you ever seen examples of reorgs where it's not so much a focus of letting people go as it is on asking people to take compensation reductions in order to avoid letting people go
1: i think if it's in the context of it depends how it's right you know if you just say hey uh, across the board we're cutting 20 percent," get over it like i don't think that's going to go over terribly well i don't think people enjoy that they'd have to say to what end is the compensation reduction being done because we don't want to make hard choices about products that are failing and instead we're just going to all kind of peanut butter the reduction across everything I mean, to me, that's just not affected business strategy. So, you know, I would first rather just to invest in the winners, keep them at their current level of compensation. And when I say winners, I mean the products, you know, that they are that working on and not have to do it. There's another version of this, and I've actually experienced this at, at a couple of different companies in my past, where, yeah, we took a compensation reduction. I think, you know, way back at ThoughtWorks in the uh, you know, kind of 2007 period, there was a, hey, let's, we're going to take a temporary reduction we need to kind of keep the company moving but at the same time you know we're going to exchange this for other considerations as well as like catch up uh, down the road and i've seen that kind of thing work out you know but don't ask people to cut a deal you wouldn't take yourself i think is my advice and just not just because it's fair but because you want engagement people will trust you more if you share the pay proportionally or even disproportionately and that doesn't mean giving yourself one dollar salary or giving yourself a giant stock bonus on the other side of that I mean, people see Through that shenanigan, pretty fast, right? But um, really taking the pain and sharing the sacrifice.
0: Have you ever seen leaders offer retention grants to the folks that they want to keep as part of an overall cost reduction?
1: Yeah, it's extraordinarily common. Uh, I've seen it almost every, in some version of that, almost every single time I've seen one. You think it's the norm to do this, actually? Again, I've seen every company over the history of time, but in, in the, you know, five or six I've been involved with. Uh, that that is uh, the trend I've seen and for some of the reasons, right? You know, you you have critical people that you can't run the business without, and you offer them a structure uh, so that hopefully it's long term oriented. Hopefully it's around real metrics being hit, not just hey here's some money for you know the sake of money, right? You'll know, be smart about it, but it should be done. Unless you know, now there are some situations you, you just can't do it, right? You know, if you're a small startup and you don't have the money to do it, you're probably going to make other Build in some other form. It's not gonna be cash. You're probably gonna do it as, you know, stock or you know maybe some additional option grants or something like that. But just practically speaking, probably we'll have to do some of those things because no matter how well you message this, there's gonna be a great deal of anxiety. And for those people that you absolutely critically cannot lose, yeah, you should do something to resolve that anxiety.
0: What other mistakes do you see CTOs or founders make when they're reworking their engineering team?
1: I have a whole catalog of that. How much time do you have? But let's let's start with a couple of simple ones. Do it. There is what I call the the quota reorg, which is, hey, I'm a VP, I need 70 people, so I'm going to mash together a bunch of unrelated things and uh, you know make it so you have 70 people, even though you don't even care about what 20 of these people do or have any context nor want to, right? Not even related to your thing. So that's one kind of reorg that I see happen a lot. I'd seen reorgs which were just, hey, I'm missing my number, so I'm just going to throw you know the things up in the air and just reorg to reorg. I've seen. Cases where there are some company cultures where if you don't reorg every year, they look at you funny. They're like, "Well, why didn't you reorg? Isn't that what VPs do? Isn't that what CTOs do?" Like, no, our job isn't to reorg. I know it's the easiest thing to do because you know, the levers you have at your control as a VP or a CTO, or well, you know, I can influence the product people or I can move things around and just do that. So sometimes it just reach for because that's the lever you have. You know, other cases like this, I've seen reorgs based on wildly irrelevant or bad data or you know mismeasurement of data where you know reliability issues were attributed to one part of the organization because you know like a form had a default of no it's this fault it's this organization's fault is the just if i don't click an option that's the option right so like just bad data can lead to you know reorg may may need to happen but you do it poorly those are some of the most common ones but uh you know there's all sorts of there's another one i call the the soft demotion reorg where you know, we have a VP, uh, maybe we don't want to let him go yet, but we want to send a message that their work size is going to go from 80 to 40 because we're you know, not pleased with them. So great. I'm going to make all these other people get a new boss every year because I don't want to really have a hard, like you were talking about, radical candor conversation about what's really going on where, you know, what probably should happen is either you get that person coaching or you make a termination decision and to see if they've gotten anybody that can you know, step up into that role correctly.
0: So Aaron, final question for you. What is the number one takeaway that founders and CTOs should have about how to make sure a reorg goes well?
1: The most important thing is to realize you are the leader. You are at the apex of your organization. It's your fault. You get the upside, but you also you know, have to own and be responsible for what you do. And I think one of the most important things we can do is measure yourself. Measure, was it effective? Just like you would never do any initiative without thinking about what is the metric for success. I think evidence is borne out that if you measure the impact of the actions that you do and the actions that you take, that you will have a lot more uh, success in doing that uh, as you go along. We wouldn't do anything else in business about that kind of measurement. So I think it's relevant for that. And as well, just I think at the end of the day, when you demonstrate that you are putting yourself at risk by doing this, if you demonstrate some vulnerability as a leader, people are going to follow along with you, even the people that have to stay around after the reward and ultimately pick up the pieces because you still have to do your job that happens regardless of reward.
0: Aaron, this has been a super educational conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today and for teaching us about reorgs. This has been a tough topic, but also I think a helpful one, I think for a lot of people right now.
1: Thank you so much, Allison. This is a lot of fun. And I always love reading everything you write. It's a pleasure to be uh, on this show.